Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by my Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode is Anne-Marie Kingsland and Michael Matley from my Wall Street analyst team. Today, we're talking about the likelihood of DraftKings buying the British gambling company Entain, how rising labour costs will affect the restaurant and the retail industries, and what's going on with Stoneco, considering its stock has been cut in half this year so far. So guys, one of the biggest stories in the past week that I've been reading is that Netflix has bought the rights to the estate of Roald Dahl. So the first question is, Mike, which of the folks are you most looking forward to getting the Netflix treatment? <laughs> I think, uh, do you remember the one with the tortoises? Tortoises. SEO Trot. I can't remember what it is. There's some matter with, uh, he has like 72 tortoises. It's a really <laughs> hard word to pronounce now. <laughs> tortoises. <laughs> <laughs> So what we found out so far is that Mike can't say tortoises. Yeah. Either can I. <laughs> Maybe that's I an also, Irish thing. I was also terrified of the witches. Do you remember that one? Yeah, the witches was pretty scary. The the movie, the original movie of that was was really really scary. And Marie was Roald Dahl as as big a thing in the US. Yeah, because like the Matilda movie was so famous. And then I also remember being a kid in elementary school and we all had to read the BFG. And then we were taken to see the BFG play that was on in Denver. But they used like a puppet for the BFG and it was massive. Yeah. And I remember being like, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me, seeing that giant puppet. I- I'm you sorry. hardly expected it to be small, did you? <laughs> but like, I was just like, it's so lifelike and it's massive. And I was like seven at the time. I was like, I can't handle this. There's, there's really a, a thread of childhood trauma going through, <laughs> through this. People have been terrified for the movies. I just can't wait, considering it's Netflix, I can't wait to see if they do like a, a true crime style documentary about all the kids that went missing in that, uh, that chocolate factory. <laughs> They'll probably get five or six episodes out of that. Anyway, Yeah, or like when Miss Trunchbull picked up that girl by her pigtails and swung around and threw her out <laughs> yeah. of the school. Yeah. <laughs> so much potential Netflix if you're listening to us uh, give us a call there we've got lots of ideas for you so on to more serious things and over the last few months in this podcast we've spoken quite a bit about the troubles that many companies are facing right now especially in the retail and the service industries in trying to reopen after the pandemic and um, really these kind of troubles boil down to getting people to actually work for them but over the past past few weeks we've seen a bit of a sea change on this with the likes of Walgreens, CVS, uh, uh, Chipotle Mexican Grill all raising their minimum starting price to about $15 an hour. Even Amazon, a company that's so often a punch bag for critics in terms of the way it treats its employees has increased its average starting wage to more than $18 an hour over the last few weeks. Henri, you're the, the one who kind of has spoken a lot about this on, on Stock Club so far. Um, what's your take on these recent changes of kind of companies raising the, the minimum starting wage? It's it's really not surprising to kind of see these changes. I think there's a lot of pressure on businesses right now to find and maintain staff, um, some of which I think is the direct result of the pandemic and some of the conditions it caused. But I think more accurately, it's it's really the result of kind of far-reaching frustration that's been within probably the re- restaurant and retail space 
for a long time now. And it's, I guess the pandemic has just kind of highlighted and amplified these things that people are unhappy about. So Rebecca Given, who's a professor of labor studies and employment relations at Rutgers, she has this great quote where she said, we're seeing a wider understanding that these were never good jobs and they were never livable jobs. In many cases, the pay is below a living wage and the hours are inconsistent and insufficient. If anything, the pandemic has made retail jobs even less sustainable than they already were. And it really seems like when the pandemic kicked in and it closed childcare facilities and schools and public transport and other essential supports for these people, it meant that these jobs just became completely incompatible with with their lives, not to mention probably the strain of, of working in, in an essential service during the pandemic with staff shortages and, and, and people kicking off about, you know, pandemic restrictions and having to wear masks and stuff like that. It's probably incredibly stressful. Yeah. And, and I imagine as well, you know, considering the amount of white collar workers that suddenly were able to work from home, you know, not have to worry about childcare, commuting or even exposure to the virus. I think it made the differences, I suppose, between these two classes of jobs much more visible as well, if, if they weren't visible enough as it was. Yeah, and I think it's it's pushing these workers that would traditionally be in, in retail and restaurants to look for kind of similar skilled jobs in, in other fields, and, and they're taking advantage of these new hiring waves. And it's interesting to see, you know, people who might have traditionally worked at a Walmart end up taking on, you know, secretarial jobs in insurance companies, or you're even seeing people um, being hired at like marijuana dispensaries and banks and, and local governments and, and taking on these positions, and they're probably getting better pay and they're probably getting benefits. And according to the Washington Post, 26% of restaurant workers in the United States have permanently left the industry and 33% of them have yet to return to work. So now it, the pressure's really on retailers and restaurants to kind of address the structural problems within their industry and make these jobs more sustainable. I, I think in some ways we almost need to have a cultural change so that these positions are not just kind of viewed or treated as, as dead-end jobs or maybe a job you'd have for part-time in college or something like that. But like if you need it to be, you can in theory like make a career out of this if, if you want it. And I think that the wage adjustments are kind of the first step to this, but I think we're probably going to see other changes as well. Probably health insurance is going to be added, giving people more flexible schedules, giving people more hours, sometimes even like tuition supports and then career progression opportunities, I think is going to be kind of the next list of things that we'll see. And I, and I think the pressure is only going to get worse. You're seeing now political pressure with 10 states and Washington, D.C. stating that they will incrementally raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour over the next couple of years. So yeah. like, if, if they don't raise now, it's going to happen in the future. Yeah, well, like obviously the, these these wage increases are great news for workers and, and a lot of these workers who, who ha- did keep things running, especially over the pandemic. But, you know, with our investor hats on then, you know, surely higher labor costs equal tighter margins. A lot of companies will surely struggle to, to pay workers more, will they? I think really it's like a totally stock to stock, company to company basis that you really need to look at this. And to me, it seems like maybe an opportunity for management teams to prove themselves and their ability to believe in their company's longevity and their staff. Like one of the companies that I love to talk about on the podcast, and we've talked about them previously in relation to wages and employee treatment, is Costco. And Costco made these changes in the 90s. They started paying their employees really well. They gave them health insurance. And it's paid off over the years. Their their staff stays for nine years. That's unheard of in retail. That's incredible. Yeah. And, And so now we're kind of waiting to see what companies are going to follow in Costco's footsteps and then implement these changes and be able to save money in in the long run. So, for example, Chipotle and Shake Shack, they both announced they're going to $15 minimum wage. And in order to kind of address 
the short-term issues with this, they have to raise menu prices. But it's not too bad. Chipotle will be between 3.5% and 4%. Shake Shack will be between 3 and 3.5%. On average, they raise their menus 2% a year anyway. So it's not crazy. And it'll basically cancel out any impact this is going to have on their quarterly reports. The broader conversation that both of these players are entering into, which is more interesting, is how do we maintain this staff and how do we maximize efficiency in new ways? And so you're seeing places like Chipotle talk about 90% of our restaurant managers are internal promotions. So it's people coming in as restaurant staff and making their way up the ladder. Or they talk about how they've maximized restaurant efficiency to decrease the number of staff that they need. Or they're looking into opening up um, restaurants that are just pick up and drive through only. They'll have no internal seating because they're, they've had such success with their digital orders. And if they can open a couple of those, the number of staff that they'll need will be less. So then they save money in that way. So... I think for restaurants, we're seeing some innovation. I think we're seeing some key players step up to the plate and make decisions and and, and try and innovate. Um, I think things will be maybe a little bit more difficult for retail. I think retail, just the scale it functions on, I think change will just be naturally slower. So they might feel a little bit of a pinch. Walmart CEO, Doug McBillan, he said in their most recent quarterly call that about five years ago, Walmart recognized that they were kind of falling behind when it came to wages and e-commerce. And and they've been trying to kind of make up for it now. And he, and he said they, they feel comfortable with the investment they're making in wages and, and hope that it will keep them competitive. But then in the same time, he was saying, we're putting money into research for automation and we want to add more self-service checkouts because they acknowledge like they just might not be able to get the yeah. same amount of workers. Yeah, and that thread, you, you mentioned automation there. That's that's kind of been the bogeyman for the last few years for jobs in, in this kind of industry. Do you think we're going to see an increased drive towards automation across the board? I know Amazon has has been testing some fairly nihilistic type robots <laughs> and, and scary looking things in the past. Yeah, I think we're in kind of an interesting space when it comes to automation, because I think sometimes part of the reason that jobs like this get kind of pushed to the side or people are are maybe um, kind of look down on them is because they're like, oh, that job will be taken by automation. Like that job will be gone tomorrow. You know, that seems to sometimes be the attitude we have. But like, it'll probably be decades before there is enough kind of automation and little like stalking robots, like wandering the aisles of Walmart to effectively replace the majority of their staff. Like, I think we've almost gotten ahead of ourselves a little bit in terms of automation where we're like, oh, this job is pointless. It's not going to exist. But like, we still need someone to stock the shelves probably for the next 15 years. Do you you know what I mean? So I think when it comes to being like a long-term investor, you should be kind of keeping an eye on a management team, have a look at what they're doing. I would be probably looking to invest in companies that are raising their minimum wage because to me that tells me that they're thinking about their long term. They're saying, we're going to take a hit on our quarterly report for the next couple quarters, but hopefully we'll be able to maintain staff and hopefully this will pay off next year. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm thinking. It's clearly worked with Costco so far, so so that's a a pretty good thesis. Uh, Looking towards the short term then, there's there's been reports already that the supply and, and even sales for upcoming holiday season will be affected by shortages like this. Is that something investors should be worried about, especially with regards to retail stocks? I think retail stocks are definitely going to be the ones that are probably going to take a little bit of a hit. I'd say probably earnings per share are going to take a hit, and that always spooks the market. You know, there'll always probably be you know a bit of a a, a bit of a sell off. Again, I think it's going to be company to company, stock to stock. You need to kind of have a look to see what each company is doing. For example, Walmart and Target are both very famously quite reliant on in store seasonal employees who just come in and work the Christmas season and then get laid off in January. And I think they might struggle to find people, but then at the same time, probably e-commerce is increasing, online orders are increasing. So then you might need to be thinking about, okay, who might have shortages in terms of fulfillment or delivery or in warehouses? 
And I kind of thought about that and I thought, well, maybe someone like Target might have a leg up because at the beginning of the pandemic, they began using their stores as fulfillment centers. So they have staff who work in store who all they do is take stuff off the shelves and put it in packages and ship it out to people who live locally. And so they already have that staff on hand. And Target has already announced that rather than being reliant on seasonal workers, they would rather increase the number of hours that their regular staff can take on and offer to pay holiday bonuses. And so that might give them a bit of a leg up, like both in terms of e-commerce and in terms of in-store employees. So I'd say if you're worried about a stock that you hold, go and have a look about what the management is talking about, what their game plan is for labor shortages for the season, and maybe prepare yourself for maybe just a little bit of of short-term pain. But um, hopefully it'll be okay in the long term. I think in terms of of e-commerce, there's some serious global supply chain issues as well that are going to affect a lot of companies. Again, only short term, but I think shipping costs are like the highest they've ever been. There's no lorry drivers. Everyone in UK is filling plastic bags with petrol. <laughs> <laughs> that really reminded me. Do you remember? Do you remember a few years ago? Um, oil prices dropped like crazy, and like in I remember like the most um searched question on Google in the US was like, "Can I keep oil in my garage?" <laughs> that was like last year, me. wasn't it? People yeah, were buying was, oil futures. Yeah, it's like <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> So let's move on then. And, and here's speaking of, of people storing uh, oil in their garage, here's another mad story. So according to reports last week, DraftKings is making an offer to buy the UK sports betting company uh, Entain. Why is this so mad? Well, the bid being put in by DraftKings is reportedly around a $20 billion mark, which is pretty much the entire value of DraftKings itself at the minute. Mike, a $20 billion company bidding $20 billion for another company worth close to $20 billion. Can you make this make sense to me, please? Yeah, that was a very smooth segue as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost <laughs> as if we planned it. <laughs> oil in the shed to fucking merger. Um, yeah, so I'll give it a go. It's actually, it's a bit of a hot mess. And I don't know if you'll be more confused or less confused after this I'll be attempt to summarize it. But um, so Entain is a British book, bookmaker. It owns brands like Labrooks and Coral, two of the bigger names in the UK market. Um, so DraftKings put forward a $22 billion bid which is about a 50% premium on the value of shares of Entain at the minute, but it's made up of cash and stock, hence why DraftKings can get away with making an acquisition larger than its own market cap. Just issue more shares, you can magic up money out of thin air, James. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think what makes the potential acquisition really interesting is that Entain has a very important joint venture with MGN. So that's uh, one of DraftKings' largest competitors in the US market. Yeah, Entain actually owns 50% of BetMGM, so that's MGM's online sportsbook and casino. It actually provides the tech stack to run BetGM as well. So at the at the minute, BetGM controls about 21% of the US market, and DraftKings actually is at 17%. Yeah, and I believe MGM actually tried to buy Entain at one point, maybe last year or earlier this year, was it? Yeah, like that would have made a lot more sense than DraftKings. Um <laughs> Entain's old boss actually left because they turned down that offer, but it seems to have worked because DraftKings had come in. I think MGM's offer was about eleven billion. DraftKings had come in with twenty-two billion, and this is where I think it gets messy as well because it's going to be likely that MGM would have have to approve any deal that would turn Entain into it's one of its competitors, basically, or else if the deal does go through, DraftKings may have to sell off Entain's U.S. operations. But I think this is me speculating here now, but it, what is more likely to happen is that this acquisition could evolve into a proposed merger between DraftKings and BetMGM, 
Okay. Like this is now pure speculation at the minute. But <laughs> Speculate away, Mike. Yeah. Uh, what's happened recently, um, Caesars bought William Hill. They just wanted the tech and they sold off the UK and international operations. So what I think could happen, and this is also another reason why the 20 billion figure mightn't be as much, it might sound more than it is, is that DraftKings is looking at this, looking at the tech stack, looking at the relationship with BetMGM, and will go after that, maybe sell off Entain's international operations, same way Caesars did. So while 20 billion dollars is the big figure, it might recoup some of this at a later date as well, you know? Okay, interesting. Mike, you used to work in a bookies. What what odds <laughs> did you give for this deal going through? I have no clue. There's so <laughs> many moving parts in this. It's it, it seems mad. I think it will come down to MGM. And if MGM has the power to either stop it or wants to go into cahoots with DraftKings. Yeah. And and I suppose that the, the wider question then is like, this isn't the first acquisition DraftKings have made this year. They've made a couple this year. And... You know, I suppose, although gambling and sports betting is quite established here in Europe, it's still quite an emerging industry in the US or, or in most states in the US. Is this just kind of, is this story itself kind of emblematic of the wider land grab we see happening in, in this, I suppose what you would call it, an emerging industry in the US? Yeah, absolutely. I think in general, the gambling industry in the UK, and well, we say the UK a lot because it's probably the most developed market, but in the UK and Europe, Australia is a big market as well. It's already an acquisitive one. So whether it's a land grab or either buying product or functionality as well, you know, like what DraftKings are doing there, you know, they're looking at Entain's tech stack and want to implement it. So acquisitions have been really common. I think the best example and probably the largest name in the space is Flutter. Listeners mightn't be as aware of it as it's listed on the London Stock Exchange, but it's a betting conglomerate with a number of big brands under its belt. Most notably, Paddy Power and Betfair. So it made some big acquisitions recently. Acquired PokerStars to add poker and iGaming to its belt. FanDuel and what was like a really prescient move to gain access to the US market in the lead up to legalization. And of course, there was like the monster merger between Paddy Power and Betfair as well. So like they were the two largest bookmakers on the market at, the, at that time. So using like kind of the UK as a bellwether, I could see this something similar happened in the US market as well, which is still like, you know, as you said, finding its feet. But I think there will be kind of a move towards this big consolidation in the future. More of these big acquisitions or mergers, companies that end up looking a lot more like Flutter than maybe DraftKings right now with a number of big brands under its belt. And like kind of an oligopoly of sorts that like three or four big names will control much if not all of the markets under another number of small brands you know yeah absolutely it, it's really an interesting space and marie as our as our resident yank here on the stock club <laughs> podcast can you shed any light on on you know the the cultural shift to to gambling in the u.s yeah you're from colorado yourself so you know is gambling even legal in colorado at the moment um yeah colorado actually was one of the first states to legalize sports gambling um and now my parents complain about it all the time because like every ad that you see on tv is for some sports gambling app or, or website it's funny to watch the legalization process because um unless it was done at a federal level you have to kind of wait for each state to legalize and when me and rory were doing research on adding draft kings i remember going and doing a breakdown of like all the legislation to see kind of where each state was and 
some of them are funny. Like I think it's Minnesota, maybe they have legal sports gambling, but it has to be run by the state itself. So they basically pushed out all the private companies. And in some states, it's only legal on Native American land because a lot of Native American land, they have a lot of casinos there. So it's only legal there. So it's it, we're a long way off from having like sports gambling being freely allowed on everyone's cell phone in the United States. And so it's definitely something maybe to keep an eye on just so you don't get ahead of yourself. Because like I think maybe a good one to keep an eye on would maybe be Louisiana that only just recently legalized. And it wasn't yet determined what you were legally allowed to gamble on yet. And I know in the South, like college sports would sometimes be much bigger than professional sports, especially football. And so if you weren't able to gamble on college football, what impact would that have on the ability for sports gambling to become popular in the South would maybe be a question you want to answer. So it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. It's definitely emerging. I think it might be, it's probably going to emerge slower than you would like other industries to simply because of the legal roadblocks that are going to be in its way. Yeah, it's, it seems extremely fragmented still. Definitely, definitely big opportunity there. But as you said, might be a lot slower than everyone thinks. Um, let's move on then and just talk about some of the things going on in my Wall Street at the moment. So we have our brand new stock, our latest stock, the one report and the exclusive stock with one podcast all live in the my Wall Street app at the moment for September, We're starting a new month next week. So you can expect all new content coming into the my Wall Street app then. This week, however, we have some more great pieces in the My Wall Street app, including Anne-Marie's full write-up of Sova's brand, the company that she picked last week, which makes the mind-blowing yogurt. Is, is it mind-blowing or causes everyone to lose their minds, Anne-Marie? Um, it's probably both. It's apparently, it's incredible yogurt. It's, it's just very rich and creamy. And apparently they only use like the absolute best milk according to their website. So we're still, we're still waiting on our samples. When are your parents coming over again? They're coming over next week, but my mom called me on the phone literally the day the last podcast came out and she was like, we're not carrying yogurt. And I was like, okay, fair enough. Probably a wise put a, move. Put a bin liner in an extra suitcase. <laughs> In addition to that, we also have more perspective on Facebook's current brand crisis and a first look on the drive-thru coffee chain Dutch Brothers. Emmett is also set to appear on a different podcast in a few weeks' time with our friends over at Opto Sessions. On Opto Sessions, co-hosts Hayden Brain and Ed Gotham interview the top traders and investors from around the world in a bid to uncover their secrets to success. So Emmett's going to be chatting to those guys about his journey so far as an investor, including the reasons he set up my Wall Street, the details of his investing philosophy, and some of the companies he's looking at at the moment. This episode is going live in just under two weeks on Thursday, October 14th. So you can listen in by just searching Opto Sessions on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on okay guys let's move on to mailbag this week and we're going back to a request we got a few weeks ago from listener dylan lake who asked for our thoughts on stone co and why we think the company is struggling so much at the minute and marie stone co has been cut in half this year pretty much so what's going on there um it's it's kind of they're an interesting company because in many ways their growth looks great like they last quarter signed on as many clients in a single quarter as they ever had um, so they have some really nice, good signs of growth. The issue that they have run into is, is Stone Co is often compared to Square. And I think in a lot of ways, they've kind of like modeled their business um, kind of expansion on Square. And as part of that, they decided to go into small business loans and lending. And it was they sh- launched that at the beginning of um, 2020, so this right before the pandemic. And at the beginning of 2021, it looked pretty successful. It was like 7.7% of the company's existing clients had taken advantage of the service and had taken out some kind of small business loan. 
But then two things kind of happened, which was number one, the pandemic hit, which obviously took a strain on all businesses, but especially small businesses that are attempting to grow. And then number two was that there were regulatory changes in Brazil in terms of small business loans. And it meant that when Stone Co. went and had a look at kind of their expected delinquencies from loans, it was going to end up being much higher than they had initially thought. And so the company did the responsible thing, which was they took out much more loan coverage on themselves, but that actually took a big chunk out of their revenue. And then it meant that their kind of quarterly reports for the last couple quarters have just looked quite disappointing. And I think that's left investors disappointed and that's kind of taken a toll on the stock. But I think the foundation of the company still looks really strong. They're still making good moves and they have temporarily closed the lending facility while they kind of just figure things out and make sure that they're being more responsible in the future. So just a bit of short-term pain in, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it, it's just them having a bit of growing pains, really. I think I think it's also an example of like a stock being priced to perfection and anything really going wrong. Like it's in a kind of study of valuation in terms of if everything goes perfect for the next five years, you deserve this valuation. If something yeah. doesn't, <laughs> you come back down to earth a small bit, you know? Well, some of us just look for perfection, Mike. <laughs> high standards around here thanks for that though and that that's that's great so i hope that answered your question dylan so guys let's move on to the elevator pitch then to finish out today's show so we're going with another classic elevator pitch this week in 30 seconds i want you guys to just pitch me a company any company you're looking at at the moment and maria i'll go to you first any more mind-blowing yogurts on your radar no, I don't have yogurts this week, but I do have Love Sack, which we have maybe discussed previously on the podcast. They're kind of a funny little company. They got famous for making beanbag chairs back in the bean day. Beanbags they... full of yogurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how my parents are going to bring the yogurt over to the United States. Um, no, but they make they now make couches, which seems ridiculous to like be so interested in a couch company, but they're like maybe one of the most sustainable companies I have ever seen. They work so hard to make sure that you buy one couch your entire life and you never throw it out. I think it's such an interesting company in terms of like as millennials begin to buy homes and have to furnish them. I think they have such a leg up because they have this incredibly strong brand dedicated to sustainability and their growth during the pandemic while all of their showrooms were closed was astronomical. And so it's just a company I have an eye on. I'm very excited about it. I made my parents go to the showroom to try out the couches so I could find out how good they are. They were very impressed. So yeah. just just give us a little bit more context. I know this is only supposed to be a 30 second pitch, but we're gone over it anyway. You mentioned that they've done really, really well over the pandemic when all their showrooms are closed. I assume they have an incredible e-commerce arm. Yeah, so the way that their couches kind of work is is their showrooms are tiny. You go in and they'll have like a big wall of all their different fabrics. They have like hundreds of fabrics. Their fabrics are made from recycled plastic bottles. They're the largest repurposer of plastic bottles in the United States. And you, it's kind of similar to like Tesla has stores in the mall that look kind of similar where they have one car in the whole place yeah. and then just all the options on the walls. And you kind of build your own car. And then they're like, cool, we'll drop this off at your house in a month or whatever. And Lovesack is the same. Like you kind of build your own couch. You get to pick how big it you want it to be how small you want it to be what color you want do you want you know a foot rest do you want under couch storage do you you know all these type of things and then they're like cool we'll drop this off at your house in two weeks and something that my parents found very interesting was so couches sometimes between men and women can be a bit of a controversy because often the seat of a couch can be very very wide and it means that women then can't lean up against the back of the couch because where their knees bend it's like not where it doesn't line up with where the edge of the cushion is yeah so sometimes sitting on a giant couch can be uncomfortable 
at the Love Sack showroom, they showed my parents that the base of all their couches can be flipped over, and one side is designed for women, and one side is designed for men. So you can no make one. Way. Yeah, you can make one half of your couch for women and one half of your couch for men, so that like short people are comfortable on one side and tall people are comfortable on the other. That is this, amazing. This is the kind of on the ground research you don't get yeah. with other podcasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. you show me another podcast that that talks about couches that can do stuff like that, and uh, I I don't know what. <laughs> I started that sentence, but I don't know where I was finishing it. <laughs> Mike, <laughs> let's go over to you. Uh, beat that. No, I'm definitely not going to beat that. Um, so I'm pinching a company called Riskified. It operates machine learning and AI e-commerce platform that analyzes past uh, transactions to protect its merchants from fraud. It's kind of unique selling point is that if it approves a tra- transaction and it turns out to be fraudulent, then it will pay the cost back to the merchant. So um, And then it collects a percentage of each transaction approved. So uh, it kind of allows merchants to outsource their entire fraud operations. Some impressive numbers, like a survey of 10 of its largest merchants, which I assume are cherry-picked to make them look good, but uh, found that on average, Riskified reduced costs by 39% and increased sales by 8%. So there's like the obvious savings from avoiding dodgy customers and all the rest, but it's also reducing a lot of friction at the checkout, which yeah. is one of the key obstacles to e-commerce sales. So seems like a really interesting business. Yeah, as any of our listeners in Ireland might know, there's these like there's like a string of spam phone calls going around Ireland at the minute. And considering I've just had three today already, um, <laughs> any company that's tackling fraud or spam is good on my in my books. So that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Happy investing. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.